Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Really good to praise the Lord God together. The church uh, needs to praise, and we needed to sing this morning. And there's uh, the power of God is experienced by the people of God in a unique way when we join our voices and we praise him together. So we, we prepare to open up God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is our New Year's series. We want to focus on what the church should be focused on first of all in the new year. And as we open to 1 Timothy 2, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have come to the house of prayer. We ask you to pour out upon us your spirit of grace and supplication. We have come to the house of praise. Lord, we ask you would awaken in us every glad and grateful emotion. Lord, we have come to the house of instruction. So Lord, give to thy living word preached clarity and beauty so that you might be glorified in the hearts of all those who gather here. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, our text was 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, which says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That was our text seven days ago about praying for peace and praying for those in governmental authority. And then the events that unfolded, what, four days ago, they have elevated the extreme urgency of prayer. It's not my intention this morning to tell you uh, why God allowed those events to happen or exactly what God is doing. I do not know why God allowed those events to happen, and I do not know exactly what God is doing. It is my firm intention this morning to tell you what you ought to be doing and why you ought to be living the way that you're living, because I have great clarity about that directly from this passage. As we are moving through this text, I want to look at verses 3 through 7 this morning. And then if we, if we bring this series to one more week, uh, I've got some stuff in the book of Daniel that's sort of simmering in my heart this week to maybe open up next week. But today I want to cover verses 3 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, this should be our focus. Prayer, why? Verse 3, because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. From this text, I want to just answer three questions, a why and a what, and finally, a how. First question, why? The question is, why is prayer good? Why is prayer our priority first of all? Why is prayer good? And why is prayer our priority, first of all? It says in verse 3, this, meaning the church lifting up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, and especially for governing authorities, that this is good. Why is prayer good? Prayer is good because it's good in its very nature. 
It's a good thing to do because when you pray, you are immediately bringing your attention and your vocalization and your heart and your emotion into the right place. As soon as you are praying, you are doing a good thing. I got a suspicion that some of the things that you did yesterday or even this morning, you're not sure they were good things. Maybe you regret having done them. Maybe they were nasty and shameful, or maybe they were just a waste of time. But there are many things we can do that we're not really sure that they're good things. If you spend time praying, you can be certain that you are doing a good thing. That's what God says. It's a good thing. It's good in its end. That is, its, its reason and its goal but it's also good in the very process of it because when you're praying, you're not doing all those other bad things. And when you're praying, you're communing with God, which is the best thing that you could be doing. Prayer is warmly accepted by God because prayer is good. In and of itself, it's good and it's right because it honors him and we place our needs before him. Prayer is good. There is so much that we don't No. I already mentioned it's not my intention to explain exactly what God is doing in our nation. There are a lot of things that in my human mind, I could speculate what might be happening, and so could you. And there are a lot of things that we might do that might be good for us to do. It might be good for you to support a particular politician or a different one. It might be good for you to participate in a particular rally or to refrain from participating in it. It might be good for you to get out there on Facebook and tell everybody what you think and why you think it. That might be good, but it might not be good. I don't know for sure, but this I know. If you pray, it is good. It is good. It is always good. The character of God, which is good, is the foundation of prayer. The goodness of God is the ground of prayer. The might of God is our hope in prayer that we know that he is able. That's where our confidence comes from. The mercy of God means that not only is he able, but he is willing. Because he's the savior, verse three, he's God the savior. We know that he uses his might to display his mercy for salvation. And this is what we pray for. Prayer is good because it addresses the most important being in the universe. And prayer is good because it lines us up with the greatest goodness in the universe. Well, Lord's Prayer. They said, Jesus, uh, we're not really sure how to pray. Good question. Go to Jesus, ask him how to pray. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When Jesus lays out the Lord's Prayer, depending, you know, how you slice it up and which of the, which of the synoptic gospels you follow, there are seven requests, three and then four. The opening three requests are all about God and his goodness. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then of the seven, that's the first three. Then the next four are requests regarding ourselves. Give us 
Forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. Give us this day our necessities like bread and a job and a house, warm clothes. Forgive us our sins and our debts. We forgive those who've sinned against us. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those four requests regarding ourselves, but that first request covers everything. Hallowed be your name. Even in the four requests for us, it's that God's name may be hallowed when we get our bread, when we get our forgiveness, when we get our deliverance from temptation. The Lord's Prayer begins by asking that God's name be hallowed. Is this the pattern that we follow? When we pray, do we consider, first of all, God's greatness and God's goodness? First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers be made, even for kings and for your nation, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life. This is good in the sight of God, our Savior. If God, the Savior, was paid attention to by everyone around us, so many of the situations that we freak out about would begin to be resolved. For God's name to be hallowed is the most important prayer request. Because if those around us began to hallow God's name, fear God's name, follow God's law, reverence God, then other things would fall in line. Prayer is good. Someone put it like this, hallowed be thy name. That's the most important prayer because it's asking the most important person in the universe to do the most important thing in the universe. God is the most important one in the universe. Therefore, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God is the most important outworking or thing in the universe. Asking God to glorify his name and do his will is the best request that we can make. Prayer is good because it lines us up with God and his purpose and his will. I heard an illustration about prayer, uh, old, hard uh, contact lenses. In other words, years ago, the optometrist would fix certain eye conditions by prescribing a hard contact lens that was specifically shaped to the eye. And when you put that hard lens in your eye, it immediately two things began to happen. You began to see more clearly because that contact lens was working. But secondly, the way that that hard lens was shaped, it began to reshape your eye so that in the future you could see more and more and more clearly. It worked in both of those ways. Prayer changes what we see because when we pray for God to hallow his name and we pray for God's will to be done, we begin to see in ways that we couldn't the workings of God in the world. But prayer also, like that hard contact lens, it actually changes our ability, our ability to perceive what's important and what's wood and stubble and what'll last forever and what won't and what's worth weeping about and what's worth forgetting. Beyond that illustration of the contact lens not only enabling us to see more clearly but changing us, that illustration doesn't quite do it justice because in that illustration, the events of the world are not changed by the contact lens. And that's everybody's question is, well, does prayer really change things? Well, prayer is good 
because it changes us. Prayer is good because it changes the way we see things. But I believe according to 1 Timothy 2, prayer is good because it actually changes things in this world. I don't know another way to read what Paul says here except that Paul believed that if the church prayed, a definitive difference would be made in national affairs. I learned this answer years ago from R.C. Sproul who uh, was such a clear teacher. He used to say, people would say, well, why do, does God really going to change things when we pray? What if God's sovereign? How are things going to change? R.C. used to say, if you ask me, does prayer change God? I would bluntly and immediately frown and say, of course not. He's God. He never changes. But if you ask me, does prayer change things? I would immediately smile and say, of course prayer changes things because we pray to God and God is powerful over everything. I think that brings some clarity to a mystery that none of us can quite fathom. And there's more mystery in this text about God, uh, you know, sort of wanting or willing everyone to be saved, but we know that everyone's not going to be saved. But the first question, why is prayer good? Second question, what is God's good desire in the gospel? What is God's good desire in the gospel? First of all, the church should be committed to prayer. And first of all, the church should be committed to gospel ministry, passionate outreach with the gospel. First of all, prayer. And first of all, gospel passion. What is God's good desire in the gospel? That's our second question. What is God's good desire in the gospel? The question is answered in verses four, five, and six. God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God's goodwill in the gospel, according to verse 4, is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If you see verse 4, the last word of verse 4 is the truth. There's, it's an articular word, meaning very specific, the truth. And then I take verses 5 and 6 to be an exact, crisp definition of the truth that the world needs to know. Church, the gospel is not helped by a lack of clarity or specificity. The gospel has never been helped by kind of erasing the the in front of the truth and just sort of trying to find truthy sort of things. The gospel is helped when we specify the truth, the truth with clarity and precision. And so he says, this is the truth. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The gospel truth insists that God and God alone is God and that there is a way that is one way of salvation to be made right with that God and that is the mediator, the man who is God, Christ Jesus. What a great word, the word mediator. What a great old word, mediator. I think maybe Job was the first one to use it. Job chapter 9 Verse 32, Job is lamenting everything that's happening. And he's saying, I wish I could talk to God. And then Job says, 
But God is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let the dread of him terrify me any longer. Job 9, 32 and 33. In the old KJV, in the English translation, has Job saying, uh, oh, God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, nor is there any daysman betwixt us. One who is betwixt the two of us, who is able to be right with God on his own and who is able to sympathize with me lovingly and savingly. We know that this is Jesus. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Then the the author of Hebrews says in verse 16 of chapter 2, surely it is not angels that he helps. He doesn't put a hand on God and a hand on angels. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he is mediator, he is able to make propitiation. And we'll get to that in the specific word ransom in our text. Church, gospel passion is not helped merely by personal testimony, though your personal testimony should be a part of your gospel declaration. But the gospel is not helped merely through personal relation of your own experience. The gospel passion always lands with clarity of a a definition of who God is and who Jesus is and what our problem is and how that problem can and will be solved by Jesus and Jesus alone. We sang gospel clarity in that contemporary hymn, In Christ Alone. There's a lot of gospel language in that hymn, and it's important to specify. So he says, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The reformers, I double-checked John Calvin's commentary on this verse. Man, did he ever go off on the Pope when he read this verse. The reformers highlighted this verse as so important because, and it's true, human religion offers other mediators. This is the problem. This is the problem. This is why they called the Pope the Antichrist because of this verse. Because it is Antichrist to have any other mediator except Christ and Christ alone. We have to be very clear about that. Because there is a mediator, but there is only one. There is one God, there's one mediator between God and men. And literally the Greek reads, Christ Jesus, who is himself a man. The the that the ESV puts in there, it's actually not not articular. It's Christ Jesus, who is a man. Glorious declaration of Christ's humanity. Who gave himself a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let me give you quickly 
Five marvelous truths about the gospel from verse six. Five marvelous truths about the gospel from verse six. Number one, it is a gift. You see verse six, who gave. God so loved the world that he gave. I preached at a funeral last week for a woman that I, that I didn't know. She didn't come to church here. And I just preached at that funeral from John 3.16 that God gave. This is, the, this is our only hope of salvation. The first marvelous truth about redemption in verse six is that it's a gift. It is a voluntary gift on God's part. It is of grace. It is of grace. All human merit, all human mediators except Christ and Christ alone, it's a gift. It's a gift. Number two, it is personal. Because look what it says, who gave himself. The gospel is personal to God. God didn't give us a gift from a warehouse in Amazon. God gave us himself. So not only is it a gift, but it is personal. God gives us God. <clears throat> the gift is Christ himself. He is the giver and he is the gift. Did not Jesus say, there are a lot of good things that you could do for her, but the greatest thing that you could do is if you gave your very life for her. Not only is it a gift, but it's a personal gift. God gives us himself. The third truth about the gospel from verse six is that it is a ransom who gave himself a ransom for all. And here are the very important words, ransom or atonement or propitiation or substitution. Redemption, salvation, redemption specifically, means buying back. We were sold into slavery to sin and death and we need to be bought back. We are the slaves of sin and death and the price of our redemption had to be paid. The ransom price for our redemption had to be paid. God paid the ransom to God, but it had to be paid. You know this? Any sparkies in the audience? You know this verse, sparkies? All have what? Belly buttons? No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know this verse? The wages of sin is death. If God's going to redeem us, he can't merely look the other way. The price has to be paid. One ancient confession of church history put it quite strikingly, but I think, uh, I think it's worthy of the drama in the statement. God will part with his own son to save us, but God will not part with his own righteousness to save us. Is that not stunning? God will part with his very son to save us. But the price has to be paid. God will not part with his own righteousness to save us. For this would unspin the universe, which is upheld on the foundations of God's righteousness and truth. This is why the ransom had to be paid. So that in that marvelous paragraph in Romans 3, God would be just and the justifier. So for God to be just and the justifier, God not, be, not, not, not letting go of his own righteousness and his own justice lets go of his very own son that we might be saved. 
The gospel is a gift. The gospel is personal. Third, it's a ransom. And then fourth and fifth, fourth is it's for all. It's for all who gave himself a ransom for all. The gospel is universal in its scope. The gospel is universal in its proclamation. The church's mission is universal in our declaration. Now, there are more verses in the Bible about the extent of the atonement than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. And the Bible teaches, and I, I gladly hold to the doctrines of election, the doctrine of uh, Jesus' uh, particular intercession only for his own and not for the whole world, for his own sheep, for his own people. I believe that. I rejoice in that. I also take this verse is showing us the universal scope of the love demonstrated at the cross. It's a gift. It's personal. It's a ransom. It's for all. Fifth and finally, it is fulfilled prophecy. Don't miss the end. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Fifth and finally, it's fulfilled prophecy. From Genesis 3.15 to David's covenant to Isaiah's prophecy to Simeon and Anna in the temple saying, now I can depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen it. This passage is also significant in what it teaches us about the will of God because it says there that He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But we know that all people will not be saved. So does God, does God, does God always accomplish his will? Well, yes, but there's several ways of understanding that because God's will is more complex than we think it is. After all, the events of this week, right? Uh, is it God's will that people vandalize and knock over police officers and commit all these crimes? Well, no, God's the one that says don't murder and don't vandalize. And yet these events happened. So was God's will frustrated? No, God always accomplishes his will. But did these things go contrary to God's will? Well, yes. I can't, I, I, I'm not gonna uh, take away the mystery, but there are, there are some clear systematic, theological, hopefully they're also biblical categories to sort of understanding God's will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11, he accomplishes all of his good pleasure. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. And yet we know that sin and unbelief are contrary to God's will. So Christian teachers have often talked about kind of three categories to frame our understanding of God's will. God's will is one, to God. But as we see it unfolded in the narrative of Scripture, we have to have a a way of understanding it that makes sense for us. So we've talked about God's will of decree, not degree like he graduated, but decree like like he has issued a declaration. And his will of precept, that is his will of command, and then his will of permission. God's decretive will, God's preceptive will, and God's permissive will. First, God's will of decree is his unconditional purposes that depend only upon him. 
Creation is an example of that. Nobody helped God create, and nobody resisted when God created because there was nobody to resist. There weren't any, there weren't any angels or people yet. This is will of decree. In creation, God created. That's his will of decree. And yet in creation, we know that he created sneaky little people like us who have our own will. In fact, God created two orders of beings, right? Angelic and human who have their own wills. And this is why we could secondly talk about God's will of precept, God's will of command. That is, God states his conditional purposes for creatures who have their own will. And so God's will of precept or God's will of command in a sense is dependent upon the will of those angels or those humans who will or won't accept that from God. It's, it's completely dependent upon God. He and he alone is sovereign even over every creature that he creates. But every commandment is this and the universal call of the gospel is this. God commands all men everywhere to repent and yet not everyone everywhere will repent. God says, you shall not murder. And yet some of us murder. God says, you shall not steal. And some of us steal. God says, you shall not gossip, backbite. And some of us gossip and backbite. We defy God's will of precept. And yet even human sinfulness is under the control of God's sovereignty. That's because that third thing that we sometimes talk about is God's will of permission. God permits uh, what his moral law condemns. We don't always understand why God permits that, but God permits angels and humans to do things that God's moral will forbids them from doing. In this way, God is not morally responsible for these things because they come from the will of the creatures themselves. Orthodox theology always insists that God's will of decree is always done and that God is sovereign over all things. But there's always this secondary and third level category of permissive will and will of precept. Like I said, it doesn't remove the mystery, but at least it sheds some light on it so that we're not completely ignorant and so that we don't end up saying things that aren't true uh, about God and his purposes. Well, if that's the... If that's the what, then the third and final question is the how. From theological speculation, let's bring it down to personal evaluation. For those of you who were tempted to get lost in the ineffable character of God, let us spend our last couple minutes together landing body blows on that flabby character, which is you. Third question, how? should I now live? Or how can I get in on these things? If first of all is prayer and gospel passion, how can I live with prayer and gospel passion? How can I get in on this? Because if you've heard me say this before, you have heard me say this before. And if you think I'm saying it again, you're right, but it's not my fault I'm saying it again, it is your fault for saying it again. Because if you would do it, I would, not, I would not have to keep saying it. But because you haven't done it, I have to say it again. And the thing you've heard me say before that you're about to hear me say again is this. You will never drift into a vibrant Christian life. 
No one ever has. And my dear beloved congregation, you're not about to be the first one who does. No one has ever drifted into a vibrant life of prayer. No one has ever drifted into a vibrant life of gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. Therefore, you've got to answer the question, how can I live this? We have to take all of this teaching and apply it to two little words. Two little one-syllable words. One has three letters and one has four letters. All of this preaching does not land until we answer these two questions. How and when. If you want something in your life to change, it'll never change until you answer the question how and when. How and when. January, New Year's resolutions. Americans buy treadmills in January. And in March, every American's treadmill is a hanger for their clothes in the laundry room because they never use it. We like, like I, 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 I want that, but there's no when, there's no how, there's no specific follow through. So I'm not, I'm not going to now, I'm, I am not now going to lay out for you exactly when and exactly how you have to do this. I just want to, I just want to urge you with everything in me, you've got to answer those questions for yourself. How and when, how and when, when will you meet with God for prayer? How will you protect that time? How will you direct that time? And how and when will you live to make and train disciples? How and when will you live uh, uh, with gospel passion? I mean, who is it that you're going to invite to church, that you're going to offer to read scripture with them, that you're going to ask them how you can pray for them, this, this, this gospel demonstration and this gospel proclamation? You've got to nail down how and when. And then because we know that we hang our clothes on the treadmill, not only should you write down how and when, but if you really want to do it, you should tell a couple of people and say, hey, keep me accountable. Hey, check in with me in seven days. And then again in 14 days, if I'm following up on the when and I'm following up on the how, how and when. If we do that, if we make those commitments and we mutually encourage and keep each other accountable to keep those commitments, then first of all, our church will be committed to prayer, which is good and which makes the difference, the difference in both our city and our nation. And then we'll be committed to gospel ministry, which is what makes the whole thing grow as we grow together in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you have instructed us in your word, oh, give us ears to hear. Oh, and more than that, give us feet to walk. Give us hands to do. Give us the how and the when. And strengthen us. Strengthen us. Give us accountability with each other to live these things out. Lord Jesus, we praise you that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus, who is himself a man. Let us believe this gospel and then let us declare it. Let us share it. 
with lives of hospitality, dignity, godliness, so that your church might be built up, so that our Savior might be glorified. In his name we pray, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.